he uh, holds a, um, a PhD in biology from MIT, and um, um, as if that um, were not enough, he also has a doctorate in theology from Freiburg in uh, Switzerland, University of Freiburg in uh, Switzerland. Um, he is an active researcher, scientist, uh, working in molecular biology, particularly um, programmed cell death um, in unicellular eukaryotes, what we call apoptosis, and he is a priest um, of the order of preachers, also known as Dominicans, and um, um, he has many distinctions, but I'll mention one. He is an investigator in the NIH Rhode Island Idea Network of Biomedical Research Excellent Program, and he's an author of uh, several books, including Biomedicine and Beatitude, an Int Introduction to Catholic Bioethics, and this book, um, A Thomistic Evolution, um, A Catholic Approach to Understanding Evolution in the Light of Faith. And um, it is, um, um, he serves on the board of directors of the Society of Catholic Scientists. And I'm not going to take up any more time, just uh, welcome. You're, you're in for a treat. He's a great speaker. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to the Lumen Christi Institute for the kind invitation to come to the University of Chicago. It's been many years. One of my close friends as an undergraduate went to law school here. And so while I was studying for my prelims, my comps for my PhD and MIT, I was so sick and tired of reading cell science and nature papers that I came here for a week and we just partied up on my street. And um, I think that was the thing. I don't know, it seems such a long time ago. And then I would return and, and actually took a freelance. So that's been a long time. So today what I'd like to do is talk to you about CRISPR and gene editing. And I would like to speak to you as a Catholic moral theologian, but uh, not only to give you the Catholic Church's perspective on the question, but also to engage uh, to, to illustrate the primary differences between a secular approach to bioethics and a faith-based approach to bioethics. Because as a professional bioethicist, what, what I've noticed over the years is when I go off and speak at different, in different venues, especially when I'm sitting in different ethics boards, what you see is there's often different languages that are spoken about ethics. And the, primary, the two primary ones that I engage in is the secular approach and then the faith-based approach. And the faith-based approach is pretty much the approach of the Judeo-Christian, and I would add from the few people I've talked to, the Muslim account of the human person. And so what I'm gonna do today is to kind of just give you a panoramic view of how we can understand the question of gene editing and genome editing with a particular focus on gene editing of humans. So we're talking here about designer babies. Tomorrow morning, I have to fly back first thing tomorrow because I teach the freshman biology class. And I have to give my second exam tomorrow at 10.30 in Prague. So taking first flight out of O'Hare to be back home to give this exam. And last night I was having, we have our review sessions lasting till midnight last night. So I was giving my review session until then. And it's so striking because my students were aware that I was gonna come to Chicago 
early in the morning to give this talk. So at the very end of the review session, I ended up having a conversation with two of my students, and we spent 20 extra minutes just talking about designer babies. And it became very apparent that they didn't know how to begin thinking about this question. And so that's really what I would like to do today, is to help you give you a sense of how we start talking about this question. I'm going to divide my lecture into two bits, only because I'm not really sure of the background of the audience. So I'm going to begin by talking about the science. What exactly is CRISPR? And why is there so much excitement surrounding the invention, the discovery, properly, the discovery of CRISPR and its current applications in mole modern molecular biology? And then we're going to be talking about the ethics. And here I'm going to focus on the concept of dignity, because especially from a Judeo-Christian perspective, Dignity is what allows, us, what allows us to understand how we are to treat each other. So I'm going to begin with the science, and I'm going to begin from the absolute beginning, again because I'm not quite sure the, when the last time you encountered DNA was. So the genome is all of the genetic information of the organism, and if you take a single human cell, and each one of us is made up of trillions of cells, the genetic information is compartmentalized into two particular areas. You have the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome. The nuclear genome is the DNA, the information that you inherit from your father and from your mother. And what's indicated here are the chromosomes, and we have 46, 23 from dad, and 23 from mom. What most people um, know, most lay people are not aware of is we also have a genome, the mitochondrial genome, which we inherit only from our mothers. And with the humans, there's 37 genes on that, on that genome. For the most part, though, for the sake of this, for this talk, I'm going to be focusing on the nuclear genome. So if you take one of these chromosomes and you stretch it out, you end up with this iconic double helix. And my students are going to be tested on this tomorrow. It's interesting. If you think about the, 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 the problem we have at hand, your genome is about seven feet. If you stretched out your genome, it would be seven feet in length. And the largest human cell, which is the human egg, is the size of a period at the end of a 12 time, new time, times, times you Roman, I can never get it right, new times Roman font 12, the period, that's the, that's the human egg. That's the largest cell in the body. And you've got to take this large, seven feet long piece of spaghetti, put it into a bowl that small, and put it and organize it in such a way that you can access that information whenever you want to. That's an amazing feat. And we really don't understand that, which is why this century, the 21st century, is considered the century of biology where the 19th century was the century of chemistry and the 20th century was the, chem the century for physics. That's, of course, debatable. But um, for, as a biologist, it's just really exciting to be living in the century of your field. And, and, it's really, and, and, and I think it makes sense, though, because as a, as a professor who teaches freshman biology, one of the things that's striking, and I've been a professor for 14 years now, and the information in the textbooks have changed rapidly for freshman biology in a way they have not for freshman chemistry in the 14 years, or freshman physics. If you take this information, the information can be depicted as a series of texts. Because 
One of the things about DNA is it's a repetitive sequence of particular molecules called nucleotides. And nucleotides are represented by four letters, G-A-T-C. So this is the gene, in fact, that my students and I have been working on for the last seven years. It's a yeast BAX inhibitor, and BAX inhibitor is a gene that is upregulated in numerous tumors in humans. And uh, we've spent the last seven years trying to figure out what it does in yeast. And it turns out it's for those of you who are biologists, it's an endoplasmic reticulum localized pH sensitive calcium leak. And one of the things my students and I are doing now is we're beginning a small molecule inhibitor screen looking for small molecules that inhibit this particular calcium channel. But the reason why I depict this is to show you that at the end of the day, DNA can be, can, is, is information. And your genome is about three billion of these letters strung up in a long line. So if you imagine that you have 46 chromosomes, so you imagine 46 volumes of an encyclopedia, what CRISPR does, and so this is a, a schematic of CRISPR, is that CRISPR allows us for the first time to go to volume three, page 492, the first column, the third sentence from the top, the fourth line from the left, and we can change that letter from a B to a G. That's the kind of precision that CRISPR, this genetic editing machine, allows us to do. So this machine is made up of two components. It's got a cutting component called, uh, we'll show. so you have the cutting component, which is the Cas9 protein. And then what you have is you've got a targeting component. So if you want to, if you want to cut on page 492 of volume six, you need to find a way to get your pair of scissors to that particular location. So that's what this gRNA is about. It actually targets the pair of scissors. And then the Cas9, that's the scissors itself. And the combination is the CRISPR-Cas9 machine, CRISPR-Cas9 complex. And a lot of people, you know, they don't know what it looks like, so this is kind of like a schematic of it. It's based on the crystal structure of the machine. This is what the machine looks like. And here you've got DNA, and this is the machine. The machine is um, a protein that locks onto the DNA and is able to manipulate that DNA. And what this machine does is that this machine makes a cut. That's really all it does. So it makes a cut. So you've got your guide RNA. Again, that's the part of the machine that targets the pair of scissors to the particular location. And then the pair, the pair of scissors actually cut and they make a double strand because DNA is made up of double strands that are um, opposite sides of a, a helix. You make a double strand. What happens after that is what is cool. So if you make a double strand in DNA, the cell will have to fix it because double strand breaks are highly mutagenic. They cause cancer. So the cell will fix it. One way of fixing it is by simply gluing the two ends together. And when it does this, it loses some of the information at that location. So if there is a gene here, and a gene that you want it to destroy, you can simply cut that DNA at that location. And the cell's attempts to heal that cut will inevitably destroy the information that's 
that is present in that DNA, and so you remove that gene's function. What's most striking, however, is we can also edit, because what you can do is you can provide a template that the cell will use to repair the break, and in repairing the break, it changes the information from what was originally there to the information that you provided in that template. And so what we can do now is we can just go ahead and alter the information of our genes or the genes of any living organism at will. That's really the power of CRISPR. And it allows us to do some really incredible things. So to give you a sense, CRISPR, a Nobel Prize will certainly be given for CRISPR, uh, but not until the lawsuit that is pending in the Supreme Court of the United States will be resolved. I can guarantee you that the Nobel Prize Committee is not going to jump into that little cesspool because by giving the Nobel Prize, it would indicate that one, either San Francisco or Boston got it. So they're just gonna keep, they're gonna keep their hands off until all of that litigation is passed. But had, had this suit not been in the works, I'm pretty sure that the Nobel Prize would already have been given for this fundamental discovery. So the discovery happens in 2012. Um, and what, what happens there is in 2012, a bacterial machine, so the CRISPR machine is a machine that evolved over the course of millennia in bacteria, and bacteria used this machine to defend themselves against viruses. And I have no time to go into how they did that. But the first hint that this sort of thing happened was observed in 1987. And so what you see here is that it takes 20, 25 years for a apparent obscure discovery. I think a lot of people would have said that this was totally unexpected. They found this obscure machine, molecular machine, that defended bacteria against their viruses. And human beings in 2012 removed that machine, manipulated that machine, and then used that machine to our own ends so that we could go ahead and use it as an editing tool. So some of the things we've done with this machine to date. So this is a mouse model of human hereditary, hereditary tyrosinemia. So what happens is this mouse, because of a genetic defect that most prominently in its liver, is unable to metabolize tyrosine, which is an essential nutrient for the body. What people have been able to do is they've been able to take that CRISPR machine, introduce that CRISPR machine into the liver of the mouse. The CRISPR machine is able to edit some of the cells in the liver of that mouse, correcting the defect so that the cells are able to now, in their new form, in fact, metabolize tyrosine. tyrosine. And so what we have is we're able to repair the liver and cure the mouse of this hereditary disease. What's interesting about the liver is you do not have to cure every single cell of the liver. That all you have to do is you need to be able to correct a minimum number of the cells of the liver so that those cells will be able to, to kick in and they'll be able to do what the rest of the liver is not able to do. And that's in this particular case to metabolize tyrosine. 
Another area that we could talk about during the question and answer session, uh, this is actually the non-human side, this is the ecological side, and there are a lot of people who are more worried about this than they are about designer babies. This is the whole question of gene drives. And for me, to, what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna lead you through uh, what a gene drive is by comparing, so these are flies or mosquitoes, some pests, some insects. And what you do is you give one of the insects a particular gene that would kill the insect's offspring or would make the, 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 the insect very, very sick. Normally, because of the way that genes are inherited, um, the altered gene does not really spread throughout the population. It just doesn't. But what you can do here is you can do the following. You can have the altered gene, the cargo, and alongside the cargo, you have the CRISPR machine. And when you introduce this into an animal, say a mosquito or now, as we will see shortly, in, in rats, the CRISPR machine is able to transfer the information from the gene that is adjacent to it to the other copy of the chromosome. If you remember, you get every gene, you've got one from mom and one from dad. And the reason why this is the case is because you have to inherit the mother and the father, and there's probabilities associated with inheriting one or the other. But what you can do here with the CRISPR machine is that you can actually alter the other copy so that every copy is now the copy that will make the animal sick or make the animal sterile. And so over a period of time, the entire population can be genetically transformed in the way that you wish it to be. So this is November 2018. Uh, this is in Anopheles gambiae, the mosquitoes, the development of a gene drive that is able to decrease the number of Anopheles mosquitoes in a particular population. So this is in a lab. This is not CRISPR, but this is something similar. This is a gene drive associated with, uh, again, mosquitoes. But this has been done by a company, Oxitech.com, and they've actually done this in, in, the na in nature, in the wild. And what they've been able to show is that they have males, so they've got mosquitoes that have a self-limiting gene. So what happens here is there's a gene that prevents the animal from really reproducing as uh, plentifully as it normally would. It mates with female Endophiles aegyptii, so Aedes aegyptii. This is the mosquito associated with Zika, for example. So, so it's, it's really a destructive, destructive mosquito. And what ends up happening is the larvae die, and so the populations decrease overall. So this has been done in the Cayman Islands and in Brazil. So they're now, you know, we're about to, we're, we're, we're testing it. And the question that has arisen is the following. Are there ethical concerns raised by the possibility of removing an entire species of mosquito? Now there are 3,000 species of mosquitoes out there. So you know, is it going to be a problem we have one less species of mosquito? And it's interesting because my students are hesitant when we talk about this. And I said, we've already done this, for example. We've gotten rid of smallpox. So smallpox is one species of virus is gone. Now, I understand there's one, the CDC has one, Russia has one, just in case uh, we try to use it against each other. 
but for the most part, it's eradicated from the wild. So in principle, in principle, it appears that no one's had any problems eradicating smallpox. And there's an effort underway to eradicate polio, another species of virus. But the question that's being raised now is, is there something different from, between a virus and a mosquito? You know, and it's something that I think it, you should consider because we're dealing with it as a society. And this is a paper just a few months ago, we're not able to do it in mice. And this is basically pest control. So the idea here is, can we use gene drives to control rats in Chicago? And the idea here is because a lot of chemical pesticides are so toxic and noxious, would this be a healthier, more organic alternative to the kind of chemical pesticides that we're using a lot? Again, what is, I want you to consider what we'd like to eradicate an entire species of rats. Not rats overall, because there are many, many rats, but a particular kind, a particular biological species of rats. Now, not surprisingly, we're most concerned about human gene editing. And so here you've got two different kinds. You've got what's called in vivo editing and ex vivo editing. So in in vivo editing, you take the molecular machine and you introduce it into the body of the patient. And the molecular machine actually edits the cells in the patient. So this is in vivo. Ex vivo is you take the cells out of the patient, put it in your lab, alter the cells in your lab, do the quality control of the cells in your lab, get the cells that you want, and then inject the cells back into the patient. And both in vivo and ex vivo are being explored at the moment. So to give you an example of an ex vivo, you have sickle cell disease, and here you have sickle cell for those of you who are not aware, it's from a single point mutation in the hemoglobin gene. And hemoglobin is a molecule in your blood that carries oxygen. And um, here is the mutant form, GTG, and the wild type form. Wild type means the most common normal form, the expected in the wild, is GAG. And so when you have a GTG, you have the sickle, the, the sickle cell that is typical of this disease. And if you're able to use CRISPR-Cas, you will convert the GTG to the GAG. This is relatively straightforward, because what we do is we remove the bone marrow from the patient, we grow up the bone marrow, we use the CRISPR machine to edit the bone, this is the bone marrow cells, the, this is the hemopoietic stem cells, and then we inject, we figure out which is the ones that actually got edited, and we inject them back into um, the patient. And so what you have here now is this is May 2019, highly efficient therapeutic gene editing of human hemopoietic stem cells. So the idea here is we would be able to replace any, we'd be able to correct any gene defect associated with your blood. Now, another area of active research is gene editing of your eye. And you'll be going, why the eye? It turns out a couple of reasons, and I've been, I, I, I attend meetings at a Cambridge CRISPR company, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is only an hour north of Providence, because um, they want me to be, in a sense, a consultant for them and just talk about the things that they have, because they want to understand the Catholic Church's position on this, and they have faith-based advisors coming to help them understand the cultural and social dynamics that are in play to 
because they're, they're worried about marketing and they're worried about how their technology is going to be perceived in the future. So you have your age-related macular degeneration. One of the reasons why the eye is a really, really cool organ to target the gene editing. One, it's easily accessible. You can see the eye. And it turns out you don't need all of the retinal cells in order to see. You only have 10 or 15% of your retinal cells. That will give you enough vision. Now, you may not be able to drive on 90, which is a nightmare. Okay, come to the airport. Um, you might not be able to drive on the interstate, but you'll be able to avoid obstacles. You won't be, it won't, the world will not be completely blocked to you. And for patients, that's a huge deal. And so what's happening now is that there are, there's, it's called genome surgery. It's using Cas9, Cas CRISPR, in order to treat age-related macular degeneration. And this is the company that I, 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 I visit. Uh, once or twice a year, I have good friends who are working in that company. What they're able to do is they're looking to see, there's, this is called um, LPA, LPA10, and the gene that is affected is a gene called SEP219. And I'm going to get a little technical for the biologists here, so I apologize to the non-biologists. What happens in the mutant, what happens in patients, is that you have a splicing defect, so the intron is not able to be excised. And so that intron being present where it is disrupts protein function. And the cells in the eye, the retina, undergo apoptosis. And so the goal here is to change the splicing so that the defect is able to be spliced out. The reason why this is particularly interesting is because the genetic change is in the part of the gene that is not carrying important information. And so there, there's a sense that slight errors would be tolerated or more tolerable in that context than if you were editing the actual exons themselves. So you, we've also now been able to edit human embryos. So this is a shoot crop in Talapos lab in Oregon, where they were able to uh, work with human embryos. They were able to alter a, the, the the genetic mutation in a pathogenic gene associated with a heart defect. It's complex because there have been challenges to this paper. Uh, there, are, there are aspects of this experiment that are weird. I'll just put it that way. They're weird. For, from the biological perspective, when I read it, I go, that is weird. That, it, I can see how it could have happened, but it's so unexpected. And because we cannot explain anything that is weird, always is troubling because we don't really understand. And so what happens here is you've got uh, two different sets of experiments where in one case, the CRISPR machine was injected after the sperm had fertilized the egg. There was another situation where the CRISPR machine was injected with the sperm. And the data doesn't, it, it doesn't quite match up. So we're, people are trying to figure out exactly what happened. And then of course last year around this time, um, there was the shocking news that we now have Lulu and Nana, I believe. These are two children, these are not them. I hope we never find out who they are because then they will become guinea pigs to the day they die. And I, and I think that this is part of the ethical concern is that 
you have two individuals. This is uh, Jiang Kui, Hei Jiang Kui. And um, what he did is he approached families where one of the parents was HIV positive. And he convinced the family to allow him to edit their embryos so that their children would be, quote, in his, his argument was, immune to the HIV that was carried, in this case, by their father. And he altered gene, the genes, and you don't have to go into the actual genetics, but he altered a gene called CCR5 that we know actually give, gives you immunity against HIV AIDS. So a certain percent, I believe it's 18% of individuals living, who are living in Northern Europe carry a variant of this gene, CCR5, the, the variant is called CC, CCR5 Delta 32, that makes them resistant to AIDS. They become HIV positive, but the, vi so the, the, the virus is living in them, but the virus is unable to make them sick. And what this scientist did is he convinced this couple that he would make their kids immune to their father's HIV. Now there are other ways that are less risky that could have been used to prevent them from getting HIV. And he, it appears that he didn't really inform them of these options, which is why there's, there's such an outcry, both ethically and scientifically. Because the technology is such that we're really not quite sure how safe it is. Remember, you've got 46 volumes with three, well, three billion, six billion letters in the, in the diploid state. You want to change one letter. How do you know you haven't changed any of the other letters? And this is called uh, off-target mutations. And, and the field is still struggling to figure out if this happens. I mean, first you have to figure out if it happens. And the second thing you have to figure out is if it happens, what would you do to make sure that the secondary mutation doesn't make the person sick from something else? So we're now moving to the ethics, and um, like I said, I'm going to focus in, because I'm coming from the Judeo-Christian perspective, I'm going to start with that and give you a sense of how the pluralistic society we live in can disagree over the ethics of germ cell or human editing or even embryo work based on this account. So the key concept here is human dignity. And so to give you a sense, this is from the Catholic perspective, this is a document called Dignitas Personae that was published by the Vatican, and this is actually the first sentence of that document. The dignity of a person must be recognized in every human being from conception to natural death. But to, make sh to give you context, human dignity is not a theological account. It is actually a philosophical account because this is the Gerund Gesetz. This is the Constitution of the Federal Republic of Germany. This is the first sentence of the Constitution. Human dignity shall be inviolable. So, and you should, again, contextualize this Constitution. This Constitution was written right after the Nazi period. And so the primary concern of the German people in response to the Nazi Holocaust and the tragedies and the great moral evils that were done during that time was to highlight that this primary responsibility of the state was to protect human dignity. In fact, I have to go to Germany next week because there's an ongoing debate as to what constitutes human dignity. 
how do you understand human dignity? Uh, especially how would you understand human dignity in the context of the Federal Republic of Germany in, the, in 1950, 1945, when the Constitution was written? Well, what is it? Right? We use this word, we use this word a lot, so I've got to talk about what is it? What does it mean? And I, I tell my students it's this, how much are you worth? It's like a Jeopardy question. Human dignity is the answer. You have to figure out the question. And the question is this, how much are you worth? If I ask you, how much are you worth? Your students are like, I don't know. And then I say, how much does your mother think you are worth? And they'll say, priceless. <laughs> now, that answer highlights a particular intuition that we have about how the Judeo-Christian account coheres with uh, the Western ideal of the human person. This is not the case. So I am a Filipino-American, but I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand. So I spend most of my time in Bangkok with, with Buddhist, you know, Buddhist society and Buddhist culture. And one of the things you realize is that human dignity is not taken for granted in non-Christian cultures. And, and you will see how this is particularly important as the globe struggles with these kind of ethical questions. So if I ask you this question, how much is an iPhone 7 32G worth? I have to point out 32G because my students will get how much memory, Father? So um, 32G, right? If, you, if, you, if I ask you this, what you're going to discover is that there are actually two numbers associated with this question. There's the teardown cost. If you get an iPhone 7, I should update this now and use the iPhone 11. Um, it's worth as much as a computer. It's unbelievable. And then my students say, but father, your phone is not a phone. It's really a computer you're talking to. It's a very interesting perspective, right? So the teardown cost is if a competitor of Apple takes the phone and tears it down, and costs it, the approximate value is $219.80 for the components and all the labor that it would take to put it together. That's the intrinsic value of the phone. Now there's also the suggested retail price. Look at that markup, it's incredible. This is the suggested retail price of $649. So you notice there's an intrinsic value and an extrinsic value. Now faith-based, accounts, especially from the Judeo-Christian Muslim account, is that human beings do have both intrinsic and extrinsic worth. Now notice, let's talk about these two prices. These, this price, this amount, this value for the iPhone comes into play as soon as the iPhone is put together. And that value is stagnant and is stable until the very moment when that iPhone ceases to be an iPhone. This value, on the other hand, if it's you know, Black Friday, it goes down. So you know, it fluctuates. You know, on Amazon, there's a discount, it goes up and forth. So you have two values. The intrinsic value is steady because of what it is. And the extrinsic value will, will, will vary depending upon demand. It will depend upon the environment in which this iPhone finds itself. The claim that I'm making here is that the, human, the accounts of human dignity are such 
that you have, especially in the Judeo-Christian view, also two accounts. So the intrinsic dignity, this is where we say we are priceless. So your mom goes, you are priceless, and this is because of what you are. It doesn't matter whether or not you went to college or not. It doesn't matter what you do. This is your value for your mom. This is priceless. Now you notice the extrinsic, we also have extrinsic dignity because we've got salary and net worth. Now, it's really interesting because in bioethics we spend a lot of time trying to, to, to deal with this question. So another area that I think about is organ transplantation. So when I'm in Germany and I'm talking about this, I say, you know, if Angela Mar Markle came in and she needed a heart and you needed a heart, who gets the heart? There's only one heart. The heart is compatible with you and Angela Markle, the Chancellor of the Federal Republic. Who gets the heart? And what's the question? Do you have anyone know the answer to that question? Who gets the heart? All right, in our case, Trump. I didn't want to bring Trump up because the politics is so crazy. But if you, if you have the Chancellor of the Federal Republic and a lowly university student, who gets the heart if there's one heart? Who? Right. Who's in life? Who is sicker? Right? And now you notice the reason why we do this is because we intuitively want to ignore extrinsic dignity concerns. We do not want to say that she being the chancellor should get it first. So we actually say in order to avoid extrinsic dignity concerns, we fall back to intrinsic dignity. We assume that everyone is equal, regardless of what you do and how much you're worth, how valuable you are. And we say that, that this intrinsic dignity should be respected, and we set up our transplantation system to acknowledge that. You'll see that our, and this is the case because our system of bioethics evolve from a Christian account of the world. It's now post-Christian. So there are elements of it that are Christian, and they're, in a sense, it's forgotten its roots. And there are elements of it that are uh, post-Christian in the sense that it has rejected its roots. So because, because it's clear, for example, right? So you have extrinsic dignity and intrinsic dignity. So for example, if you have an account of intrinsic dignity, then the worth of the human person is simply because he or she is human. It's a human organism. And it is not earned or bestowed, it is acknowledged and recognized. And you see this in numerous documents after World War II. Again, in response to the Nazi Holocaust, there was an attempt to preserve the dignity of the human person and separate it from political and social recognition because you had political and social either recognition or disrecognition that was going on. We said this was something intrinsic. But remember, if it's intrinsic, then the value of that thing begins from when it starts off being what it is to when it ends. Because there's no such thing as partial intrinsic dignity, because there's no such thing as a partial human organism. Either you are a human organism or you're not. And it's interesting, I, I hope you see that this is actually a philosophical account for why the Catholic position on 
life matters is such that it begins at conception and ends at natural death. Because if the value, the intrinsic value of the iPhone comes into being when the iPhone is first assembled and is only lost when the iPhone is killed, and if you believe in an intrinsic account of human dignity, then it has to be from when the human organism comes to be to when the human organism is extinguished. If you, on the other hand, hold to an extrinsic account where it depends upon criteria, whether or not you can dream, whether or not you can feel, whether or not you have a brain, whether, so now you have an extrinsic account because what happens now is we have to decide when this thing is worthy of acknowledgement then you can see that the barriers move because it depends upon consensus and politics. And so you have two different views here. You have a view where once the human organism is, it is intrinsically valuable because it's intrinsically valuable. There are certain things you can't do to it. And because of this, of course, we're all equal. right? And so there's a whole debate about this intrinsic dignity because post-Christian secular bioethics has no way to justify intrinsic dignity. So everything is extrinsic. And so that so what happens now is you can now lose your dignity. This is why you have death with dignity. So in certain states, you have arguments that if you are unable to think if you're end-stage Alzheimer's or if you are you are basically unable to care for yourself, you are now undignified and you have lost your dignity, and therefore we should allow you to regain your dignity, because now dignity is associated primarily with choice, rather than, so you notice it's about choice. Dignity is what you have because you can choose, versus dignity is what you are, what you have because of what you are. And so you have two different competing accounts today. Now, for Christians, intrinsic dignity is grounded on a, two things. First, there's a theological claim that we're made in the image and likeness of God. So this is the Imago Dei concept for Christianity. But you also have a philosophical claim. And, but this philosophical claim is also highly controversial today. Right? If I had something that's made of gold versus something that's made of lead, you would say that the something that's made of gold, because it's gold, is just that so much more valuable than the thing that's made of lead. And if, in, case, in this case, if the tradition is correct, the philosophical tradition is correct, that we have an immaterial soul, and I have no time at this time to argue for that, but I think that even in light of AI and all of the other things we have to deal, deal with, you can make a coherent philosophical claim for the immateriality of some dimensions of human cognition, not all, not calculation, not imagination, but certainly abstraction and conceptualization, then there is an immaterial soul. So if you are immaterial, and the dog is material, then an immaterial is eternal, then you are worth more than the dog. You see, so this is a philosophical account that is distinguished from the theological account. Now, faith-based bioethics, therefore, focuses on both preserving intrinsic and extrinsic uh, human dignity. My secular friends will focus only on extrinsic dignity. And so the kind of arguments that you have when I go off the secular meetings is, who gets to choose? 
That's the main. So the most, when I sat on ethics committees in secular hospitals, the most powerful individual there is a lawyer. Because the lawyer is the one who arbitrates who gets to choose. So the ethicists argue and argue and argue, can argue for two days, and we look at the lawyer, and the lawyer goes, the law says he gets to choose. It doesn't really matter what he chooses, it's that that he gets to choose that is important. So when you have human genome editing, um, you can see now there are going to be two particular concerns, intrinsic and extrinsic concerns. And again, I'm going to be speaking here from a Catholic perspective, and it's going to be, uh, you know, different faith traditions are going to approach this in different ways. So the dignity concerns are usually listed as four. And so the first are safety, safety concerns, Safety of persons, commodification of persons, marginalization of persons, and just access for all persons. Notice again that we're dealing with persons here because we're dealing with dignity. And dignity is properly ascribed to persons rather than things. And Kant and Pope Francis have said, you know, uh, things have price, we have dignity. And so the idea is that dignity is what is, is the equivalent for what an object would have with regards to price. So safety of persons, these are the two primary concerns right now. Off-target mutations. I told you I'm going to change this one letter. I've got six billion letters. How do I make sure none of the other letters are changed? What we can do there is twofold. We make the editing machine incredibly precise. And there are efforts to, to do this. And then we also have to find ways to identify off-target errors and then to correct them, right? So that's happening. Chimeric tissue is another issue. Chimeric tissue is where what you have is that half of the cells of your liver are fixed, the other half are not. Is that going to be a problem? Because if we can't fix every cell, maybe the hybrid, the chimera, or the mosaic is even more dangerous than having you sick. So we'd have to do that that test. Now, commodification of persons. This is the, the notion. This, this is a very basic fundamental principle of Catholic bioethics is you cannot treat the human being as an object. The human being has to be treated as a person. This, all, this, this is um, deeply Christian, but it also has echoes, of course, it echoes from Kant. And Kant's view of how you are not to treat a person as a mean, as nearly as a mean, but you also have to treat him as an enemy. So I, again, I don't have all of the time to go into that. You have to, the difficulty here is that using gene editing to design babies, what happens is that your children are treated as a means to fulfill the desires of another. So you are designed to be the next amazing lacrosse player. Well, that's because your dad had, had this lacrosse thing in college. Now, you grow up and you want to play the piano. There's an issue there, right? There's an issue. This is called open future. This is where you are being used to fulfill the dreams and of someone else. And I already deal with this because I have to deal with freshmen who come in and want to be doctors because dad and mom or grandma and grandpa always wanted to be a doctor and she wants to do English. And so we've got to figure out how to do that because mom and dad are paying for the degree. 
We usually have double major. All right. We're now talking of this is uh, artificial reproductive technology in IVF. And here, basically, you have the, the, the concern that, again, the person is be a person, the child, is being made in the image and likeness of another rather than the individual unique person that he or she is. There's the marginalization of person. So here the idea is that, well, and I, a student said that, Father, I know now, there's in class, he goes, 100 years from now, you'll be able to see all the Christians and the Catholics. They're the ugly ones. <laughs> the view being that everyone else who's not Christian or not Catholic would use CRISPR to design absolutely perfect, gorgeous, beautiful people. And because of moral concerns, the Catholics would be all natural. Right, which means ugly. And what happens then is you have exacerbation of social divisions because now you've got, you know, you got pretty and you got not so pretty, and now the majority of people are pretty, and so there's an arms race for pretty. And so you end up having who's prettier. And we already have, you know, I, again, as a college professor at a primary undergraduate institution who runs an undergraduate laboratory, you have eating disorders. I have to deal with eating disorders. I have to deal with issues associated with self-worth because we already struggle with image issues. And the, the, the notion here is that with the standard, if now your parents couldn't afford to genetically engineer you, and so your classmate is stunningly blonde. First of all, the, the non-blondes point out that stereotype thing. Why should blonde be more beautiful from non that brunettes. This, we've had arguments in my next class about this. What makes blondes more beautiful, especially since blondes, Caucasians are mutant forms of human, right? So you may not realize it, but the original human is an African. So everyone who's lighter is a mutant form. So everyone else is a mutant. The original African American is the original. They're like, oh my God, really? Yeah, you're mute. And the lighter you are, the more mutant you are. And it changes your perspective. Because why does the mutant have to be, quote, the standard for beauty, right? And so we have these kind of arguments. And then you have the eugenic temptations. We struggle constantly to purify the gene pool. We, have, we, we are tempted to purify. We are tempted to get rid of. I understand there's only one Down syndrome per person in all of Iceland because everyone else was aborted. And she survived because they made a mistake. They didn't realize she was down. And um, it is tragic because I know individuals, there are families who are waiting to adopt Down's children. And um, there aren't enough because so many of them, the pregnancies are terminated. And so what you see here is there is a constant eugenic temptation. And the idea now is that we would use CRISPR to go ahead and do that. And then, of course, we have just access for all persons. So I get, in, I get involved in conversations with all these CRISPR companies, and I bring this up. And one of the things that I would say is we're going to put aside budget so that if we develop these technologies, we will make sure that the developing world, the resource-poor parts of the world have access to these technologies and so that it's not just limited to the rich and the famous. Now, so I'm going to, this is why one of my last slides, I'm just gonna highlight a couple of the principles that we're considering in this conversation. So there are two kinds of gene editing that 
uh, are talked about. Somatic cell is I change one of your cells right now. So for example, gene editing of the eye, gene editing of the liver, those are all somatic cells. And then there's germline modification. That's when I change the embryo. The embryo is changed. So I now change future generations. If I change your liver, it's not going to affect your kids. So the question is, if I can fix you, why can't I fix your kids? That's really the big issue. And um, I'm going to just throw this out for you to consider that somatic cell modifications for therapeutic reasons could be morally justified. In other words, if you are sick and I can change your liver, it's, I can make the argument that we can change your liver genetically to cure, cure you of that illness. I think most people will not have a problem with that. Germline modifications could be morally justified. Again, if I can fix you, I should be able to fix your kids even before they come to be. This is a lot more complicated. There's a lot more technology in place. And, but one of the concerns that I'm going to raise in the next slide is I don't know if we're going to be able to get to that position where we could justify it. Notice I said I used the word could. Germline modification for non-therapeutic reasons. I want you to have blue eyes. I want you to be blonde. I want you to be big. I want you to be whatever. There's non-therapeutic. I think there appears to be a moral consensus in society anyway that this is ruled out. However, one of the things I've discovered there's always that very rich couple that wants a big kid. You know, it turns out tall people get elected to office. They've done the studies. The tall, if you compare two candidates, tall candidate, short candidate, they're pretty much comparable. The tall candidate wins. So height actually is socially beneficial. When you look up to someone, there are things happen where you are much more willing to follow what that person says. They all this behavioral economics. So there are people who say, well, if I'm going to be willing to give my kid, you know, there are big fights now about preschool in Manhattan because there are long waiting lists in, for preschools because the idea is that if I get my kid into the right preschool, then he'll get into the right kindergarten and then all of a sudden, boom, 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 he's at the Ivy League. So now there are families duking it out for preschool positions because they want their kid to have social advantage. Well, if you're willing to pay tens and not hundreds of thousands of dollars to save a position in preschool for your little type who has not yet been born, because I know this happens, then why not go off to the Bahamas and have your little type actually genetically enhanced? So when he gets to preschool, he's smarter than everyone else. You see, that temptation is, is going to be incredibly great. I just don't think that we have the, our society has the moral resources to hold back that kind of desire, that kind of drive for, and that kind of ambition in our families. But here's my primary safety concern right now. So if, when we do safety concerns, we have to do a risk-benefit analysis. We've got to make sure we give you a novel drug. We, we do uh, clinical trials and we basically test to see, and this is, some, this is a group, a small group of patients who are terminally ill and we ask them whether or not they're going to be willing to try this experimental drug. We don't know if that drug will help them. In fact, a, you know, just a phase one trial is just to look at safety. Here's the issue. If you're going to do gene editing for babies, 
and you need to do a risk-benefit analysis before you can allow it to happen, how are you going to do that when you need to have a genetically engineered person living over the course of a lifetime to do that genetic analysis? Because you might change the gene so that it affects him in one way when he's six, but it'll affect him differently when he's 60. So you actually have to wait over the course of a lifetime in order to do the kind of risk-benefit analysis. A lot of my colleagues will say, well, well, let's do it in mice. You know, we, we, we have human fit, fit, uh, clinical trials for sight, even with extensive primate, in, in spite of extensive animal trials, precisely because we know human biology is quirky enough that it doesn't, all of the things we learn in these other model, other model organisms do not necessarily translate. So if you can't have a subject to study, how will you study the, the, the germline modification. That's kind of the question that's going on right now. And it's really interesting because it's not clear how we can go around that. We can do the somatic cell. You can, you can, you can sign off and say, I want to get my liver treated, and I'm not sure I'm going to die anyway, so I'm going to try to get my liver treated. But if we're doing germline modification, we're going to genetically engineer a baby. Uh, we would normally do not allow that to happen unless we, we know that that intervention has no ne negative effect. But we wouldn't be able to do that without those babies. So it, it's like a conundrum that we fall in. So I'm just going to end here. So this is my laboratory. This is my undergrads. Um, they asked me the most amazing question. So Providence College has a very robust interdisciplinary core. So my students, even my bio students, are reading Robert Karamazov, they read Dante regularly. They have two years of Western civilization where they do philosophy, theology, literature, and art. And they have it every semester for their freshman and junior and sophomore years. And I teach in the honors globia for that. It's really fascinating because I can be running the polyethylamide gel while discussing evil. Right? Because my student has just finished reading the brothers Karamazov and he's trying to figure that out. And then he talks about gene editing. So this is where it comes up. So many, many late night conversations have triggered the kind of thinking that's been brought up. Um, and this is I have to think. So this is the, I have a John Pepperton grant right now. So my work is both in science. I have an NIH money to run my grant, my, my research laboratory. But once I got tenure, which is great, once I, once I was promoted a full professor, I could do other things. So I went into evolution and faith in science. And so we've got uh, the Biologos money and the John Technical Fund uh, to help us do that. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Of